I don't know if this is on. It sounds like it is. Um, if you could open your Bible to that passage, our Bible reading in Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, let me pray and then we'll look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, I pray for you to give power to my words this morning, that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully and powerfully, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, comfort us where we need to be comforted, and that you would transform us to be more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, some truths don't require any action at all. So, for example, if I was to tell you that Canberra is the capital of Australia, that's not life-changing, is it? You don't need to do anything as a result of me telling you that Canberra is the capital of Australia. But if I told you that someone had placed a bomb under one of the seats here that's going to go off in five minutes, that's entirely different, right? You might decide to look under the seats and and if that indeed was true, you would have a decision to make. You might go, do I cut the red wire or the blue wire? Or maybe you'd contact someone who knows something about bombs. Maybe you'd try and get away as far as you can in five minutes. Or maybe you'd hope that, like in the movies, some superhero or action star will come in and stop the clock with minutes to spare or seconds to spare. But whatever you did in that situation, that would be a situation that you'd need to respond to that truth. And I guess wisdom would, well, time would show the wisdom or otherwise of a decision. But whatever it happens, if someone says there's a bomb under one of the seats, you can't just go, well, that's interesting. It would be a truth that confronts you and it demands a response. It would be a truth that requires some action. Now, I'm not aware of anyone putting any bombs on any of the seats, although there are heaters, thankfully, (laughs) underneath that are keeping me a little bit warm this morning. But there is a truth in our passage in Acts chapter 17 that's kind of more like the time bomb type truth than it is the Canberra as the capital of Australia type truth. Did you see there? Acts chapter 17... Verse 31, there's a truth that demands a response. And that truth is, verse 31, He, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. Just incidentally, I'm I'm preaching on two verses this morning, and I've got three points. Verse 30 and 31, and I'll unpack those in their context, but... First point, God's going to judge the world. You see it, verse 31. He's fixed a day, he will judge the world in righteousness. And I put it to you that that's actually good news. It's good that God's going to judge the world. It actually means that our lives are important. It means the way that we live matters. See, as you look around the world, you see events on a global scale from Russia's invasion of Ukraine or coups in Myanmar or Afghanistan or Sudan or you look at things like that and you say, that's not right. 
you can look at that and say it's good that there's a day coming when God is going to bring about justice or righteousness. Or you look at the Holocaust. You look at the millions of Jews that were put to death under Hitler or the millions killed under Stalin or Pol Pot. When we read that God is going to judge the world with righteousness, with justice, that is good. Because you see, our legal systems don't always bring about justice, do they? They don't always get it right. Maybe you have experienced some sort of injustice in your life. Something's happened to you and you feel it. It's not right. That's not fair. That's not just. Maybe you felt the pain of injustice. Well, God set a day when he's going to judge the world with justice, with righteousness, and that's good. God's going to judge the Hitlers of this world. He's going to judge the Saddam Husseins, the Bin Ladens, the Putins. But before we get caught up with God meeting out justice to those people, we need to remember that God is going to judge us. He's going to judge me. He's going to judge you. How are we going to fare on this day of judgment? Well, take a look, Acts chapter 17, verse 22. This is the context of these verses in Acts. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. See, the context of these words from Paul is... Paul is in Athens, and he's been in the city, he's looking around, and he recognises that they are very religious people. Perhaps these days we might call them spiritual. They were so religious and spiritual, in fact, that they had an altar set up to every god that they, that they could imagine, and just in case they might have missed one. They even had an altar with the inscription to an unknown god, and Paul sees this and he says to them, I can see that you guys are very religious, You've got this altar set up to this unknown God. Well, let me tell you about this God that you don't know. Verse 23, he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made heaven, who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, this God that they don't know is actually the true and living God. He's the God who created everything. He's the God who rules over all creation. He's the God who sustains all creation. When the sun came up this morning, it did so because he willed it. It would not have done so without him. 
This God, he gives life to all men. We would not be here now if it were not for him. He determined our allotted periods, the boundaries of our dwelling place, verse 26. He determined the exact moment each one of us would be born. He determines each breath that we'll take. He determined that I would be here this morning saying these words to you right now. You see, often we think we control our lives, don't we? But ultimately, the true God is the one who does that. He's the Lord of life, the one who gives us our lives. But why? What, what's the point of our lives? Do you want the meaning of life? Here it is. I put it to you, verse 27 of Acts 17. Many life, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. You see, the point and purpose for which you and I have life is that we would seek him, the true and living God. The problem is that none of us do. The same Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 3, verse 10, 11, he says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. You see, when we're confronted with the true and living God, we all seek after other gods. Now, the Athenians that Paul's speaking to here, they were worshipping everything but the true God. They were religious, they were spiritual, but they weren't right with God. Do you know what the first commandment is? I got us to read the Ten Commandments earlier. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. God said to his people, You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is on, in the earth beneath or that is the, in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. But you see, these commandments were given to the nation of Israel. They were given to God's chosen people. Now, the Athenians clearly were not living in accordance with them. They had made and they were worshipping everything you can imagine, all sorts of things that they'd made, all sorts of false gods that they'd created, everything except God. But they weren't God's chosen people. They weren't the nation Israel. They weren't given the Ten Commandments. Maybe they could plead ignorance. Keep reading, Acts 17 verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
Paul says here that God's actually been overlooking the times of ignorance. He's been overlooking people rejecting him and worshipping all sorts of false gods, but not now. The Athenians cannot plead ignorance before God. They have no excuse, as we'll see in a moment. But what about us? See, I'm guessing that you don't have any statues that you've carved and that you physically bow down to to worship. Though you might, but I'm guessing you probably don't. But if I was to ask you, if I, if I asked you this morning, what is the most important thing in your life? Or in your spare moments, when your mind drifts off to something, where's it go? What is it that consumes your thoughts? What is it that you're living for? If the first thing that comes to mind is not the Lord Jesus Christ, then I put it to you that I think you've got an idol, at least one. You've probably got numerous idols. Oops. There's all sorts of things that we worship as God. I say the big three are money, sex, power. Or you can put that as glory, greed, girls or guys. But they're the wrong G's, right? They're not God. And as a result, God is rightly angry with us. We don't give him his due. We don't give him his rightful place at the centre of our lives, the one who gives us every good gift, the one who gives us life. We ignore him. We worship all sorts of things instead of him. And and we're in no position to plead ignorance either because, as we saw, firstly, God's going to judge the world. Secondly, if you have a look at verse 30, the resurrection of Jesus assures this. Look, verse 3, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, we, all of us, have no excuse for not living for God. We have no excuse for our ignorance. God has actually made it perfectly clear who he is. He's made it clear by raising Jesus from the dead. Now many people these days, as well as back then, they want to say that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. Or some will soften that by saying, we can't really know. I wasn't there so I can't really be sure about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, imagine you're at a trial. Or imagine a judge at a trial saying, I can't know anything about this case because I wasn't there. Someone's on trial, hundreds of people shot dead in a shopping centre, 
hundreds of witnesses who all testify to what happened, but I can't know because I wasn't there. I can't make a decision about this case. Well, that would be ridiculous. What any judge would do is get the evidence, get the eyewitnesses, listen to their testimony, see if it matches up with what we know to be true. That's what you'd do. And you'd make a judgment based on the evidence. And so if you're not sure what to make of the resurrection of Jesus, I want to encourage you to check out the historical evidence for the resurrection. Don't say, I can't know. Check out the eyewitness accounts. Jesus was a man who was publicly executed. He was absolutely dead. This man, Jesus, who was absolutely dead, was absolutely alive again three days later, witnessed by up to 500 people. He wasn't resuscitated minutes later. He wasn't weak and wounded and showing the effects of near death. He had his scars to be sure, but he was... Alive, larger than life, witnessed by hundreds of people. And the Apostle Paul was one who testified to having seen the resurrected, the risen Jesus. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was an historical fact. It was center to life itself. Paul gave up his whole life to testify to this fact. But given that Jesus did rise from the dead, we now have no option but to take the resurrection seriously. We need to take notice of the resurrection. The resurrection is like a big warning sign to us about God's coming judgment. Almost 30 years ago, um, I went on a trip with my family up to northern Queensland It was about this time of year, but in Queensland it was actually quite nice. It was pretty pretty warm weather, and um, we went to visit my uncle who lived at Ingham at the time, which is up between Cairns and Townsville. And my uncle owned this 26-foot yacht, and we decided we were going to take it out for a sail around this place, Hinchinbrook Island. Beautiful day. We got to the water, and... My brother, uh, he, he thought, oh, great day to go for a swim. So he dumped down his towel and he ran off at, towards this water. And I looked over to where he was about to go for a swim and I saw something that I concluded that he must have missed. So I yelled out to him, Tim, did you see this big sign back here? And he said, what sign? I said, the one that you just ran straight past that says, no swimming, crocodiles. See, here was my brother about to do something that at the least was probably pretty unwise, but potentially could be fatal. He'd been unaware of the crocodile sign, he'd been ignorant of it. So now he had a choice to make. Here was a truth that required a response. Should he continue to go with his plan for a swim? Or should he turn back and not go? Well, he decided to turn back. And had he not decided that, I would have pleaded with him to reconsider. And I would have continued to do that until he listened. Now, he didn't take much convincing. 
But why did I point out the sign to my brother? Yeah, there's danger. And because I love him. That's why. Now, I could have said, well, there's a big sign there. If he didn't see it, that's his own fault. What do I care, right? That wouldn't be very loving, would it, for my brother? And and why am I sharing this with you now? Because God is going to judge the world. There's a day coming when we will all be held to account by the God of the universe and we're all guilty and we're all deserving of punishment because we've ignored the one who made us and who owns us. We've rejected the true and living God. We've rebelled against him. We've worshipped all sorts of things besides him, all sorts of unworthy things. And the resurrection of Jesus is his big warning sign to us that a day is coming. What are you going to do? If you see a child run out on the road and you know that there's a car coming, are you just going to stand there and do nothing? You couldn't do that, could you? If I see my brother about to go and swim in crocodile-infested waters, if I just can I just stand there and do nothing? Not if I care, I can't. See, friends, God is going to judge me and you and we're guilty and that day is coming. And I've heard people say, I hate it when people try to scare me with respect to God's judgment. And it's true that a better reason to come to God is love and joyful thankfulness for who he is and what he's done. Not because we're fearful of judgment. That's true. But to be sure, God is going to judge the, the world, and that is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not a place that you want to be in. And it's not a question of if I'm trying to scare you, but rather, do we have anything to fear? Was I trying to scare my brother about the crocodile sign? Well, at one level, yes, I was. But more accurately, I was trying to love him. And if I need to scare him to get the point, well, so be it. But it wouldn't be loving of me to say nothing, just like it wouldn't be loving for me to not point out God's coming judgment. There are consequences for ignoring God's warning sign. And if we know about that judgment... How can we not care for those who are living as if they're unaware of it? If we care, we have to warn people. We have to tell them. But in light of that warning, in light of Jesus' resurrection, there's only one sane response, and that's my last point this morning. Verse 30. Times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not only God's warning sign to us. It's also the source of our hope. Now, this might be seen to be stating the obvious, but the reason Jesus was resurrected was because he died.
we are deserving of punishment in the face of God's judgment, but Jesus actually came to into the world to die in our place. He, he came to take the punishment in our place. He came to provide a way out before he judges us. And that's amazing news. That's great news. We are no longer facing God's anger at our sin because Jesus has taken it on the cross. And the resurrection is actually the sign that his death was effective. The resurrection is the sign that Jesus has conquered sin and death so that all who trust in him can be freed from death and be raised with him. And the response that's demanded by this truth, we see in verse 30, is that God declares all people everywhere to repent. Now, repent just means to change direction. It means to turn around. So, for example, my brother repented of going for a swim. In this context, in Acts 17, it means to go from worshipping the false gods to worshipping the true God. It means to go from living our own way independently of God to living for God. It means to go from making our own decisions about life to submitting rightfully to God's rule as Lord of our life. I might have told this story before, once when I was here, but my father's a pilot. He has an instructor's rating, which means he can teach people how to fly, and he has his own aircraft. And I remember a time many years ago now when my dad, and he took me up for a flight. It was the first time he'd ever let me take the controls of the aeroplane. So uh, we took off from my hometown of Tumut in New South Wales, which is in the Snowy Mountains, and we flew up over the dams and the, over the snowy scheme, over the mountains. You could see the snow. It was beautiful. The longer that I kind of flew around for, the more I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing. But this is pretty easy. I can, I can do this. I got this flying thing down. But eventually we started heading back towards my hometown of Tumut. And as we were approaching the airport, my dad turned to me and he said, Ryan, I'll take it from here. I'll take the controls back. Now, how do you think my dad would feel if I ignored him at that point? If I just insisted on doing my own thing? Sorry, Dad, I got this. (laughs) I don't care what you say. Well, my first guess is that my dad would be upset, but it'd be worse than that, right? be worse than just my dad being upset with me because though I might have been able to convince myself that I could keep a plane in the air, at least until it ran out of fuel, landing it would have been a whole different story. But that's kind of what it's like with us and God. We've been hanging on to the controls of our life and we might have even been thinking that I can do a pretty good job of playing God. I can live independently of him. I got this. 
But God is asking. No, God is commanding that we give the controls of our life back to him. To ignore him would not only leave him angry with us, but we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of his judgment in a place that we don't want to be in. And so my question to you this morning is this. Are you still trying to live your own way independently from God? If you know you've never taken that step, or if you feel like recently you've kind of been doing your own thing and you want to trust your life into his hands, if you're seeking refuge in Jesus by trusting in his death in your place, then you should talk to him about that. Tell him you're sorry that you've been ignoring him. Tell him you're thankful that Jesus has taken the punishment that you and I deserve. That maybe you someone who's been guilty of putting other things in the place of God. Maybe there's an idol that you, you recognise in your life that you want to turn from, that you want to confess. Or if you do know this love of Christ, if you are convicted about the truth of this coming day of judgment and you are seeing people living unaware of this, maybe you should pray, along with me, because I know I'm like this, that he would give us courage to speak out in love, to warn people about the danger of rejecting God. Pray that he'd give us boldness to share the truth of what the Lord Jesus has done, because we're like him, want to love people so that they may be saved. How about I pray that God help us to do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for him coming and dying and taking the penalty that we all deserve for worshipping everything but you. Thank you that a day is coming when you are going to put all things right, when you are going to judge the world in justice, when you're going to put an end to all the the wrong in our world. But Father, help us to be ready for that day by trusting the Lord Jesus and, and give us boldness motivated by love to share the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus so that they too might be so. And I pray all this for his glory. Amen.